0: Washington, D.C., this is on the ground. As an early winter is predicted for Europe, the U.S. proxy war against Russia continues to impact energy, economics, food, and the threat of nuclear war. We speak to Professor Gerald Horn.
1: Right now, we're at a very perilous moment, not only because of what has been highlighted in the Putin speech, that is to say, excoriating the United States for dropping atomic weapons on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japan in 1945. But it's also a very perilous moment because as you look around the world, you see a number of converging dangers.
0: And we go outside the Supreme Court, where during the first days of the new term, justices heard cases that will determine whether there are actually voting rights in the United States and whether water in the U.S. will remain protected.
1: I mean, the bottom line is clear. Our communities need clean drinking water a lot more than polluters need bigger profits.
0: All that and much more coming up on today's show. Welcome to On the Ground, ground onthegroundshow.org, voices of resistance from the nation's capital for October 7th, 2022. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, the conflict in Ukraine continued to escalate, at least in rhetoric this week. On Thursday, both President Joe Biden and Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky continued to insist that Russia is threatening to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine, even though Russia has mentioned the use of such weapons only in response to documented threats from Western leaders, including from UK Prime Minister Liz Truss. During a fundraiser speech for the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, Biden said that Russia is raising the risk of Armageddon. And during a conference call with Australia's Lowy Institute, Zelensky said that NATO should conduct quote unquote preventative strikes on Russia to keep Russia from using nuclear weapons, which Russia interpreted as Ukraine advocating preventative nuclear strikes on Russia. In response on Friday, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Levrov said that the Kiev regime, backed by more and more weaponry from the United States, is the party creating the nuclear risk. The Biden administration just approved another $628 million in arms sales to Ukraine. Also on Thursday, Russian President Vladimir Putin signed a law making the four regions which approved referenda on joining Russia officially a part of the Russian Federation. The signing came after both chambers of Russia's parliament ratified the treaties with the Donetsk and Luhansk republics and the Kyrgyzstan and Zaporozhye regions. Meanwhile, Nord Stream AG, the company that owns and operates the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines, which were bombed on September 26, released a statement on Tuesday that said the company is being barred by Sweden, Denmark and Norway from inspecting the site in the Baltic Sea and from carrying out its own investigation of the sabotage. The statement added that Denmark said it would take more than 20 working days to grant access to the company, which is 51 percent owned by Russia's Gazprom. In an interview with Bloomberg about the sabotage, economist Jeffrey Sachs said that he would bet that the U.S. is behind the terrorist attack. Though Western news organizations were quick to blame Russia for bombing its own pipeline, Sachs pointed to radar evidence of U.S. military helicopters circling over the area, the threat from U.S. President Joe Biden earlier this year that, quote, one way or another we are going to end Nord Stream, end quote, and Secretary of State Anthony Blinken expressing that the destruction of the pipeline created a, quote-unquote, tremendous opportunity. Sachs said of Blinken's remark, quote, that's a strange way to talk if you're worried about piracy on international infrastructure of vital significance, end quote. More on the conflict in Ukraine later in the show. Closer to home, some Floridians left devastated by Hurricane Ian are posting online a raised Ukrainian flag and a plea for federal aid that they say is going across the ocean and not to them. As of late Thursday, the death toll from the storm had risen to 120, making it the second deadliest storm of the century behind Hurricane Katrina. Breakthrough News interviewed residents in Lee County, hardest hit by the storm, and reported that the county waited an extra day to issue an evacuation warning that could have saved lives. Here in D.C., on the ground was at the Supreme Court for the start of the new term, when the court will hear two important cases that will have a major impact on voting rights and fair elections. On Tuesday, October 4th, the court heard the case of Milligan v. Murrit. The plaintiffs argue that Alabama racially gerrymandered voting district maps so that even though black people make up 27 percent of the state's population, only one rather than two of the seven states districts is majority black. A panel of three federal judges agreed with the plaintiffs and ordered new maps to be drawn. But instead of changing the maps, Alabama appealed to this far right Supreme Court, which has shown a hostility to the Voting Rights Act. Outside the court, I asked lead plaintiff Evan Milligan why he pursued the case. He is executive director of Alabama Forward, a civic engagement project, and a former project manager for the Equal Justice Initiative people of your generation. I mean, I talked to a lot of people who don't believe in voting. They, they tell me, oh, voting doesn't matter. And so talk to that audience about why you brought the lawsuit and why you think it's important to stick with this case.
2: So if you're in that crowd of people that feel like voting is not important to you, one thing I would say is for many of you, voting is a choice. And the the choice not to vote is a choice. People fought for a long time and gave up their lives even. And certainly sometimes large levels of comfort. They gave up a lot to make sure that we have those choices. And there's a reason that those choices, that there are hundreds of millions of dollars being spent today to take those choices away from us. Mm -hmm. So if if you're you're a person that follows the money, then you want to say, well, you know, I'm choosing not to do this. Why do they care so much? Mm -hmm. I don't even vote. It's a good reason to pay attention to it. If they're trying to make it harder for people in your community and family to vote, Mm -hmm. that's not an accident. Right. And so what people like the ones involved in this case and others are doing is really making sure that these things are called out, that they're put on notice, that we're giving... Information to our community members and we need more of you to stand up and join us we have the ability with our phones today with the technology we have to, to understand things that even 15 years ago were, were very tricky for us to understand now there's YouTube videos that explain it so much information we have so we need more people actually going out to register to vote coming and, and learning about cases like this that impact the Voting Rights Act because this is a legacy that we've inherited. And every time black communities are expanding in terms of our rights, you see you see just the country as a whole, politics in the whole, as a whole expanding in this country, it goes in a more democratic direction.
0: Participating in the hearing of this case was the newest member of the Supreme Court, Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson, who reminded her fellow justices of the intent of both the Voting Rights Act and of the 14th and 15th Amendments enacted to specifically address race discrimination and to raise formerly enslaved people to the level of full citizenship with equal rights. She said, quote, I don't think we can assume that just because race is taken into account that that necessarily creates an equal protection problem. Because I understand that we looked at the history and traditions of the Constitution and what the framers and founders thought about. And when I drilled down to that level of analysis, it became clear to me that the framers themselves adopted the equal protection clause, the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment in a race conscious way. The Intelligencer column said of the argument in Milligan versus Merritt, quote, it is especially perverse to hear the lawyer for a former secessionist slaveholding state tell the Supreme Court that the 14th Amendment makes it not only acceptable, but obligatory to run roughshod over the rights of black citizens in determining how and probably whether they are represented in Congress. And it's especially appropriate that the first black woman to serve on the Supreme Court reminded him what equal protection actually meant and means. Around the country, Republican-controlled state legislatures are blocking or diluting the vote of communities of color and eliminating majority black districts that have elected black officials. Also outside the court, I spoke to Representative Sheila Jackson Lee, Democrat of Texas, representing areas of Houston and its northern suburbs. She said the Texas state legislature almost eliminated her congressional seat this year in a redrawn map.
3: One of the good things, I think, that was put on the table, what was Congress' intent? I'm so happy to hear that, sitting there as a member of Congress. What was our intent? Our intent was to make sure that there wasn't discrimination in voting and that everyone had a one-person, one vote. And so I just think uh, Chief Justice Roberts' court, with him as a chief justice, is it is absolutely imperative that he acts with leadership on the law, and that is not to deny Americans, their right, their precious right to vote. Right. What were we intending? Right. We were intending, uh, in the Voting Rights Act of 1965, to one, pre-clear bad laws that were going to take votes away from you. I'm in Texas. I'm suffering purging. I'm suffering the closing down of um, early vote sites. I'm closing. They're closing down sites where you drop mail ballots.
0: Right. Um,
3: ballots. And I can't get a glass of water in the hot sun. So, and the only thing we have left. Is section 2. Okay and I as I said, I, I'll say it again justice requires the right to vote. it's a precious right. Uh, and the last thing I want to see is a lynching of the voting rights of Americans.
0: We'll hear voices rallying outside the Supreme Court for the Clean Water Act after headlines. In D.C. news, according to a new report, the District of Columbia was forced to rehire 37 fired police officers, including several whose actions were deemed a threat to public safety, such as physical and sexual assault, and pay millions in back pay. The report by the D.C. auditor reinforces previous reports that detail how in D.C., like in many American cities and towns, the internal police discipline process does not lead to justice for the public. In an interview with a DCist website and WAMU Radio, DC Auditor Kathy Patterson said, quote, We have had individuals come back on the force who a reasonable man or woman in the street would say, I don't want that person carrying a gun on my behalf, End quote. The auditor report, which includes names and actions of the cops, is at dcauditor.org. And finally, in culture and media, YouTube talk show host Katie Halper was censored, then fired from a job at the Hill for referring to Israel as an apartheid state. Halper said she recorded a segment for the Hill's rising show defending Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib after Tlaib was attacked for calling Israel an apartheid state. Halper says the Hill censored the segment and then booted her. But another colleague caught it all on video.
4: It's outrageous that Rashida Tlaib is getting attacked. Tlaib is merely stating that Israel is an apartheid state and that people who claim to have progressive values cannot support an apartheid state. No matter how loose a definition of progressive we use, it certainly excludes supporting a racist apartheid system. What's outrageous is attacking Tlaib for pointing out that progressive except for Palestine is an intrinsically contradictory position.
0: Hassam Salem, a Palestinian freelance journalist and photographer, said Wednesday that the New York Times terminated his contract over social media posts in which he expressed support for the Palestinian resistance against the Israeli occupation. Salem said the decision was made based on a report prepared by a Dutch editor who obtained Israeli citizenship two years ago for a website called Honest Reporting. According to Salem, the article which the New York Times had based its decision for dismissing me, gives examples of posts I wrote on my social media accounts, namely Facebook, where I had expressed support for a Palestinian resistance against the Israeli occupation. My aforementioned posts also spoke of the resilience of my people and those who were killed by the Israeli army, my cousin included, which honest reporting described as Palestinian terrorists. The editor later wrote an article stating that he had succeeded in sacking three Palestinian journalists working for the New York Times in the Gaza Strip on the basis of us being anti-Semitic. Not only has honest reporting succeeded in terminating my contract with the New York Times, said Salem, it has also actively discouraged other international news agencies from collaborating with me and my two colleagues. What is taking place, he added, is a systematic effort to distort the image of Palestinian journalists as being incapable of trustworthiness and integrity, simply because we cover the human rights violations that the Palestinian people undergo on a daily basis at the hands of the Israeli army. And that is what Salem wrote on Twitter. Philip Weiss wrote about the case in Mondo Weiss, saying that, Salem's case, quote, stands in stark contrast to the three Jewish reporters, Ethan Bronner, Isabel Kirshner, and David Brooks, who carried on writing about the issue for the New York Times, even when their children were enlisted in the Israeli Defense Forces. He continued, the Times executive editor in 2010 overruled the public editor's recommendation that Bronner be removed from the post of Jerusalem bureau chief saying that those who questioned his bias should not be allowed to deny the rest of our audience the highest quality of reporting. And he says this is an important case because it shows the impossibility of even representing the Palestinian voice in the Western media. There is widespread support for armed resistance to Israeli occupation among Palestinians sorting out journalists who have not expressed such views at some time is something like looking for Palestinian reporters who support Zionism, end quote. And finally, there are several street actions happening in D.C. Journalist Chris Hedges, former Green Party presidential candidate Jill Stein, former U.N. weapons inspector Scott Ritter, And yours truly are among the speakers who will be rallying for imprisoned WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange on October 8th, noon to 3 p.m. in front of the Department of Justice, 1950 Pennsylvania Avenue in northwest D.C. Also, the Women's March will be happening Saturday in D.C. It will begin at 11 a.m. meeting at Folger Park and in cities and towns across the country. There will be other demonstrations to restore abortion rights and to end the filibuster for this reproductive right to be codified into federal law. And on Sundays, October 9th, there is a rally led by Haitian Americans in support of the people of Haiti, 3.30 to 5 p.m., with people meeting at 16th and H in Northwest D.C. More than 100 groups are calling on the U.S. to end years-long anti-democratic policies of handpicking Haiti's leaders and propping up repressive regimes. More information is at HaitianJustice.org. And those are our headlines and happenings. Stay with us.
1: Next up, we have Michelle Mabson, co founder of Black Millennials for Flint. Give it up for Michelle.
4: Good morning. I want to just say you all are wonderful for being out here. Give yourselves a round of applause because it is quite a morning. Again, my name is Michelle Mampson. I am the co-founder and chief advocacy officer of Black Millennials for Flint. I'm also a public health scientist by training. And I'm here today because Black Millennials for Flint, we represent and work with communities that are looking to protect as many of our communities as possible from lead exposure, to make sure that our children do not suffer from lead poisoning. And we work in communities as a grassroots and civil rights organization here in Washington, D.C., as well as in Flint, Michigan, in Memphis, Tennessee, and Baltimore, Maryland. In Flint, Michigan, I work with faith leaders, mothers and birth workers, young people, organizers, policymakers. And the stunning reality is that as we are here eight years later, post the water crisis, there are still many who have to have the burden of buying bottled water in order to feel safe because they can still not consistently receive completely lead free water in the city. And as we're here today, and we're here before the Supreme Court, we have the re- reality that it's these city's residents who are going to be at additional risk of chemical exposure, given the number of vulnerable tributaries in the great state of Michigan and the waterways that flow throughout Genesee County. So enough is enough. And the Clean Water Act is meant to protect our water from pollution. It's meant to keep us safe from toxic chemicals where we fish and where we recreate and that serve as very important habitat for wildlife polluting industries as we've heard today want nothing more than to pollute freely in our revered wetlands with as little oversight as possible. And they would like us to believe that there's some sort of separation or silo between our wetlands and the water that we drink every day. And that's just clearly not the case. These are the waterways that feed directly into the water that will ultimately end up in our homes. And most water utilities simply do not have the technologies, nor do they have the means to filter out the toxic chemicals and pollutants that, again, will end up in our drinking water. And I would be remiss not to acknowledge we're going through yet another devastating hurricane season. Many have lost their lives. We have to recognize that the need to protect our wetlands that have often served as a way to protect our communities is vital more than ever. We cannot be subjected to further degradation and development in our wetlands. The brevity of today and the decisions that will be made, again, is not a silo. And we know that our fragile ecosystems are experiencing immense and irreversible damage from climate change, development, and urbanization. And while there are organizations working to reverse and mitigate these impacts, we've reached the tipping points that we'll never return from. And I know that many of us today and my counterparts were speaking feverishly, we are speaking with urgency, and that's because, again, we are experiencing these concurrent threats already, and this is not something that we can accept any longer. So I'll just finish acknowledging that we do not have to sit and wait idly for today's decision to make an impact and I implore each and every one of you to be able to assist with voting registration drives ensure that no one sits on the sidelines this November continue to educate yourselves and also to participate in local meetings because that's where a lot of zoning decisions are actually made so thank you again for all of you here today when I say water you say there we go we got it thank you all (laughs)
1: Thanks, Michelle. Next up, we have Leslie Fields, the National Director for Policy, Advocacy, and Legal for the Sierra Club. Give it up for Leslie.
5: Good morning, everyone. Thank you for hanging in there. Thank you for all your hard work in all these coalitions and in the communities. And best of luck to our attorneys who are going to be uh... speaking behind us to the justices i'm leslie fields the national director for policy advocacy and legal for the sierra club the largest grassroots environmental organization in the nation and i'm proud to join with you to support the clean water act and the strong protections to our water and i have to say i'm really honored to be here and i'm also i have to mention as a black woman attorney that justice katanji brown jackson is sitting for the first time I cannot tell you how important and significant that is. And we know that she understands the rule of law, and it means a great deal to me. I couldn't have imagined that all those years ago when I was in law school. So I, access to clean, safe, reliable water is a fundamental human right, which is everyone has been saying to every person in this country, no matter the color of their skin, their income, where they live, and, in fact, all life on Earth depends on water and our beautiful, beautiful planet. For 50 years, the Clean Water Act has protected waters across the country, including the wetlands and streams at stake in this case. Polling shows, as mentioned, that it remains one of the most popular and respected pieces of legislation in U.S. history. But industry and polluters who are in this case are now asking the Supreme Court to remove millions of miles of streams and wetlands from the protections of the Clean Water Act. Not because it's what the American people want, but because what they because they want to treat our waters as cheap, disposable areas to cut their own costs. If polluters win, the drinking water supply for one in three Americans will be at risk. I am here today representing the Sierra Club's millions of members to join with you to make sure that doesn't happen. Since water is one of our most critical resources, and the Supreme Court and the administration, along with all of us, have a duty. We all have a duty to do what we can to protect our waters. The health of our communities and our climate depend on the Supreme Court to continue to keep, to maintain this well-established statute, to maintain the precedent to their full effect, and to allow the government to meet its obligations to faithfully use them to protect the health of the American people. I was a child growing up in and around Cleveland, Ohio. I remember how it was. It wasn't just the river catching on fire. It was open, paint, paint plants, Dumping straight into the Cuyahoga River. The quality of life has become so much better because we do not have that sort of pollution. It's a very desirable place to live now. It worked. The Clean Water Act worked, the state laws worked, the political tide changed and it worked. And so I'm asked so I'm really excited that we are here today and i'm really am hoping that the supreme court you know rules in favor of all the americans who and everyone around the world who depend on clean water see us as the vanguard of making sure that our environment is protected and like everyone else since i'm the closer let's when i say water what do you say Justice. all right thank you those
0: were the voices of activists rallying outside the Supreme Court on Monday, October 3rd, to support upholding the Clean Water Act as the court considers the case Sackett versus EPA. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. On the ground, onthegroundshow.org. Voices of resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Iverum. Well, Secretary of State Blinken and other U.S. officials are going around the globe trying to round up support for a vote at the United Nations to denounce Russia for annexing areas of Ukraine, including Luhansk, Donetsk, and Zaporizhia, that voted recently to join Russia. To talk about this latest development in the proxy war against Russia is our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Houston. His most recent book is The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of American Fascism. And I want to talk to him today to connect that history in the book to what's happening today. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you. Well, I'm making that introduction because when President Putin, in his September 30th speech, blasted the West for its history of colonialism, genocide, atrocities, and even said that beginning after the breakup of the Soviet Union, that the U.S. exploited and colonized Russia or attempted to. And at that time, there was this capitalist frenzy for the resources of Russia so I was struck by the idea of extending the concept of colonialism, neocolonialism, and even slavery. I think he even said that the West wanted to enslave, you know, Russia, Mother Russia, and extend those ideas to those practices to another European people or to the idea that some of these Western Europeans, when they are speaking what they, what they actually think, you know, separate Russia from what is European.
1: Well, first of all, I think that the speech by Mr. Putin was quite important. I think that it is as important as the March 1946 speech given by then Prime Minister Winston Churchill of Britain in Missouri, where he announced the onset of the Red Scare and the acceleration of the Cold War that dominated policies on this small planet for decades to come. And what Mr. Putin said was of equal portentousness. He fundamentally turned his back, or was made to turn his back more precisely, on hundreds of years of Russian history, going back to Peter the Great, whereby Russia was looking westward for solidarity, for inspiration, for imitation. But now he says that Russia will be turning east and south. And with regard to south, therein lies the point made concerning seeking to identify Russian history with the history of the global south. And I think that that will strike a chord as represented by the fact that Mr. Blinken is having difficulty in rounding up a posse to go after Moscow. Right now, we're at a very perilous moment, not only because of what has been highlighted in the Putin speech, that is to say, excoriating the United States for dropping atomic weapons on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japan in 1945, and then suggesting that this was, quote, a president, unquote. (laughs) That is to say that It's not only the United States that can get away with mass murder, but it's also a very perilous moment because as you look around the world, you see a number of converging dangers. For example, you see the hostility growing not only towards Russia, but now towards the organization of petroleum exporting countries, since they've announced this week that they're going to cut production. Right before U.S. election, which probably will lead to an increase of the price of a gallon of gasoline at the pump, already in Los Angeles, the price is heading towards $7, if not higher. And that was not good news for the Biden regime, which, by the way, some months ago began releasing petroleum from the so-called Strategic Reserve. And basically, that's about tapped out now. And then the meteorologists tell us that winter will be starting early in Europe, as early as a few weeks from now. And that is not good news in light of the crunch in terms of natural gas. And in light of all the stories we hear about people in Germany and Austria who are wandering into forests, gathering wood. For Wood-burning stoves, which is a throwback and is also uh, quite dangerous. And then there's what's happening in the markets. It's not only the implosion in London and the decline of the pound, but also there are eerie signs that carry the earmarks of what happened to the capitalist world in 2007-2008 with the Lehman Brothers collapse. uh, Right now, there's a real fear that Credit Suisse, which is a major bank and investment arm um, based, as the name suggests, in Switzerland, uh, might be going down for the count, which could drag down other banking interests with it. The same holds true for Dorsha Bank. And just uh, as a footnote with regard to Credit Suisse, it had been headed until recently by a man of African descent, believe it or not, albeit of a prominent Senegalese and Cote d'Ivoire family happening to be married until recently to a Black American woman who used to work for Biden, speaking of Annette Anthony. And my contention is, is that he was railroaded out of that enterprise and it's been sinking ever since. So there's a sort of poetic justice to the fact that this bank is sinking, but the collateral damage might hurt us all. So this is the state of play, and it seems to be leading to a certain kind of fury in the North Atlantic world. You see this with regard to threatening to sanction Algeria, because Algeria is buying arms from Russia. It reminds me of what the United States attempted with regard to Turkey some months ago, because Turkey was doing the same thing. But Algeria is being lobbied to fill the natural gas gap that was created when there was a rupture in relations with Russia. And so it doesn't make sense to me to sanction Algeria at a moment when you're pressuring Algeria and lobbying Algeria to ship more natural gas to Western Europe. And then perhaps more most ominous and dangerous of all is all this loose talk about World War III, all this loose talk about how supposedly Russia is going to use tactical nuclear weapons, which I basically see as an excuse for the United States to rationalize either A, a preemptive strike against Moscow, or B, uh, seeking to escalate tensions further, and matters have not been helped in that regard by the setbacks on the battlefield of Ukraine. Now, there are many ways to look at these setbacks. Uh, One is the way you see it in the Washington Post and New York Times, that is to say, uh, Russia is collapsing. It's a giant with feet of clay. It's a paper tiger. Another way to look at it is that it has been slow to mobilize and had been fighting without all of its forces on the ground. That's the nature of a so-called special military operation. But with the coming into Russia's fold of these aforementioned regions that had previously been Ukrainian territory, uh, you'll probably see a ditching of that concept of special military operation and moving either towards a counterterrorism operation, which would be an escalation, or perhaps even something higher on the scale of conflict than that. In any case, uh, that holds perils for Uncle Sam, which is now being charged by Moscow of being a kind of combatant uh, in this battle. After all, you can't look up without the Congress voting another package for Ukraine. I noticed that after Hurricane In that you had communities in Florida that raised a blue and yellow Ukrainian flag because they thought it might be the best way to get (laughs) Congress to ship them aid. Whatever the case, uh, that is very ominous as well. The fact that Moscow is beginning to charge Washington with being combatant, being a combatant means that Washington and I'm looking at you Washington DC could be in the crosshairs.
0: Well, You know, you mentioned danger and you talked about the dangerous moment that we're in and I mean I actually had that to talk about first because the uh I, I heard Liz Truss then a candidate for her job but now she's the UK Prime Minister some weeks ago said say that it would be her job, it would be her duty to use nuclear weapons against Russia. And there were other Western leaders that really were thumping their chest and in this kind of irrational way that you were describing this fury, talking about using nuclear weapons in this conflict, even though they're supposedly not really involved or combatants. But when President Putin in his speeches As far as I could hear, he did not threaten to use nuclear weapons. He was responding to threats already made by Western leaders like Liz Truss, but all the corporate media here and in Europe keeps repeating this trope that Putin is threatening to use nuclear weapons. No, what he said is that I would remind uh, leaders in the West that we also have weapons, and we even have some weapons that are more powerful than yours, and so if because they can use the corporate media to twist his words and then twist them some more and then some more it can, seems to me it leads us to this real dangerous precipice not only in terms of the economic issues you mentioned and the just the the coming winter you know i guess all like game of thrones fans know that you know when they say winter is coming it's like something serious but but also just in terms of this loose talk about nuclear war But I wanted to pivot because I know we don't have a lot of time. Now, Gerald, I wanted to, I know you kind of chuckled a little bit when I said that I want to make the connection because this first, the connection I was talking about in terms of what colonialism is, you know, what neocolonialism is, what even slavery is, and the fact that, you know, Putin is evoking this history in his speech But he also talked about the times that Russia has been invaded from the West through Ukraine often, right? So I thought about Napoleon's invasion of Russia in 1812. And at that time, you know, millions of people of African descent were still enslaved in the U.S., though Haiti had defeated the French you know, the trade and kidnap Africans was still ongoing. Europe was spreading the scourge of colonialism around the world, including the beginning of what China refers to as the century of humiliation. And, you know, China was the major trader in the world at some point, you know, the country that first practiced what's referred to now as globalism, you know, global trade, But all of that was brought to a halt through this uh, destruction of China, the impoverishment of China, the attacking of China uh, through that century of colonialism and basically taking apart China. And so when Putin talked about the Soviet Union basically being broken up after, when he talked about after the breakup of the Soviet Union in the 1990s and how it was so much of its wealth was extracted. There was this feeding frenzy among capitalists for Russian resources. It just reminded me that... And he talked about how now the the United States is trying to continue this process of colonization of Russia and to break up Russia for its resources. So... Um I think you mentioned before that this view of history would resonate with the formerly colonized people of the majority of the world in Africa, Asia and Latin America. And um I thought about how we might relate this to the period that you cover in your book because of a time it was a time of enslavement of colonization and really kind of marked when this this whole era of the unipolar world um that is breaking up now really got on its feet.
1: Well, I would say that part of the problem that we're encountering today, not only has those historical roots you just made mention of, but it also has contemporary roots. What I'm talking about is this so-called unipolar world that was created some decades ago, but now is crashing into the reality of a multipolar world This will have enormous significance for this small planet. You already see that, see this with regard to de-dollarization, that is to say, that the world is moving away from using the dollar as the global currency. That is to say, when Russia sells energy to India, the trade is conducted in Indian rupees and Russian rubles when they sell energy to China. It's conducted In renminbi from China and rubles from Russia. And part of the issue that we're facing today is that Washington has reacted badly in the past when nations have sought to move away from this dollar-based system. Now, with regard to the history that is mentioned in the Putin speech of a few days ago,
0: and can i just interject for one one thing that cause to to maybe draw that out for people because when Gaddafi, for example wanted to move africa to another type of maybe a gold standard or or create another currency for africa that what what followed was the his assassination the, the attack on his country so when the Iraqi leader wanted to uh, perhaps use a different type of currency. Whenever a leader wanted to use a different type of currency, that led to their destruction of their country and maybe even their assassination.
1: Well, and I would also add this footnote, since we're dealing with the 21st century issues, you might have seen the proposal by Elon Musk that put forward an idea with regard to how this crisis in Ukraine could be settled, which in some ways was Musk adapting Minsk. That is to say the so-called Minsk Accords, uh, right. Initialed by France and Germany. But what I find found striking about his proposals is that it reflects the crisis as well, because Elon Musk has made a big bet on production in Germany and production in China. And those two nations are now in the crosshairs. Germany, to its surprise and dismay, since it considers itself to be an ally of the United States. And of course, we all know about China. Now, back to the Putin history that he helped to illuminate. What I found remarkable is that in that speech, he could have mentioned the Crimea War of the 1850s, where you saw Britain and France gang up on Russia, not only ganged up on Russia, but also allied with their supposed religious antagonists, speaking of Ottoman Turkey, a predominantly Muslim nation. And then a few decades later, you saw that London financed the Japanese attack on Russia, which was a real turning point in world history in terms of the perceived blow to white supremacy. And so you see that the capitalist countries were willing to toss overboard what had been thought to be bedrock principles, be it Christian solidarity or be it racial solidarity. And I think that what that speaks to is what Mr. Putin was suggesting, which is that Russia is considered to be a major prize, Uh, speaking of which, I don't think that it's out of line to encourage our pro-war friends, if I can use that anomalous phrase, to consider what the world would look like, assuming that the North Atlantic countries carry out their demonic wishes. That is to say, they would be strengthened, there would be heightened opportunity for conflict with China. They would be strengthened, which would not be good news for Africa, not be good news for Latin America. And folks really need to consider if that's the world they want to live in.
0: So, well, we talked a little bit about the explosion of the two pipelines going into Germany last week. We talked about that on last week's show. But if we use that same that analogy that you're using, they're also willing to throw overboard economically a so-called rival, a so-called ally in Germany, um, which is breaking the, you know, the kind of superficial alliances, even though the original NATO, I guess adage was to keep Germany down, keep America in and keep Russia out. So anyway, I know we're kind of running out of time. Uh, so, I wanted to I wanted to end with the whole idea about the annexation because you know maybe I'll end where I started because Anthony Blinken, as we mentioned, is running around the globe right now trying to drum up support for this to den- for for countries to denounce this annexation. But we know that after NATO attacks you yet yeah, attacked Yugoslavia, the United States rallied behind the idea of Kosovo being a independent entity and honored a referendum taken by by those people right and yet they have still not uh recognized the vote taken by people in Crimea after the 2014 coup in Ukraine uh because they wanted to to uh, annex themselves as part of Russia which they had always been a part of and Russia was not going to give up its only its major naval base there uh, and have that be you know in the hands of a country that would be a part of NATO eventually or that wanted to be a part of NATO so maybe we could just end on your your thoughts about this whole annexation process and and what's going to happen what you see happening in the next uh week or two before we speak again <laughs>
1: Well, I don't have my crystal ball before me, but I don't think it requires an oracle to suspect that there is going to be a major mobilization in Russia, that there's going to be a major offensive or counteroffensive, if you like, within the next few weeks, because militarily what's happened is that Ukraine has thrown many of this troops and many of his troops altogether into trying to attain these battlefield victories. because I think that they recognize Allah Napoleon that with regard to the moral factor, to the physical factor on the battlefield, it's akin to three to one. That is to say, if you can inspire your forces to feel that they're winning, and can inspire the other side to feel that they're losing, it can have knock-on effects of tremendous capability. However, if you look at other analogous battles, such as 1944, when the Germans threw everything they had at the Allies led by the United States and the Soviet Union, uh, you saw that it made them quite susceptible to a punishing counteroffensive coming from the Allies. And there are many military analysts who suspect that that's what's about to happen in the next few weeks. However, we should not count our chickens uh, before they've hatched, because uh, many of us were taken by surprise by the rapidity of the Ukrainian successes on the battlefield uh, since August. And therefore, what I'm saying now could fairly be considered to be a speculation, In any case, I think that one of the lessons we should take away, particularly from our view of history, is that the capitalist countries will manipulate religion, they will manipulate race and racism, but ultimately what they're interested in is maintaining hegemony financially and economically. And that's part of the lesson of Russian history. And by the way, since we were talking about Putin's speech, I was also struck by the point that he made that the crisis in the 1980s in the capitalist world led by the United States to an extent was alleviated by the plunder of Eastern Europe, particularly Russia, that unfolded in the decade following that crisis of the 1980s. Mm-hmm. And given our past reference during this conversation to the impending possible crisis signaled by the implosion in London, the apparent decline of Crédit Suisse and Deutsche Bank, it appears that the capitalist countries of the North Atlantic would like to see history repeat itself that is to say, to rescue themselves from the crisis by further plundering of Russia.
0: Right. To me, the, the issues are the same, because we're talking about a time, in terms of Gerald's book, The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery, Jim Crow, and the Roots of American Fascism, at a time that this whole system, whether it's global capitalism imperialism really got on its legs through the enslavement of african people by the forced enslaved labor creating all types of wealth for not only the us but europe and since then there've been you know a series of crises or the depressions recessions whatever and now we're at a point where this whole global system is in crisis the last few decades of unipolar power are, are in deep trouble. And so the United States finds itself putting billions of dollars into a a proxy war against Russia. And it just reminds me so much of, I mean, I don't know. I just see the whole history as really a big arc coming to this point. It's all connected to me, but I wanted to just, uh, I encourage our listeners to uh, take this last chance to get uh, Gerald's book and support WPFW. We're raising this money for WPFW. It's not for us but we want to support Pacifica because in this time when I'm just totally inundated, it's very hard to even watch corporate media because of the raw propaganda that doesn't even pretend to try to tell us the truth about these serious issues impacting our lives. We want to support Pacifica. We want to make sure it's It's here uh, in Washington, D.C., in New York, uh, in Los Angeles, wherever you're hearing the show. We want to make sure that Pacifica is alive and well. 202-588-9739, 202-588-9739, or 1-800-222-9739, or pledge right online at wpfwfm.org. Do you want any last words for the listeners in terms of supporting Pacifica, Gerald?
1: Well, yes. Uh, the book that you reference, the latest that I publish, uh, there will be signed copies to be sent to those who pledge. Second of all, some of what I've said today, I've written about it on the Black Agenda Report website. And I point you to that particular source as well.
0: Okay. Well, I've been speaking to our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you so much, Gerald. Thank you. And that's it for today's show. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. We're on two dozen stations on the Pacifica Radio Network. And on all your podcast platforms at On the Ground with Esther Ivarum. Our website and archive of all our shows is onthegroundshow.org. In addition, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and I also link to every show on my Instagram page at Esther underscore Ivarum. Special thank you to all of our supporters on Patreon.com at On the Ground Show. The music we play this hour included Free Palestine by Abe Bachin, Wade in the Water by the late, great Ramsey Lewis. And our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Everum. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. This is Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, DC. So please go to our page at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. That's patreon p a t r e o n.com forward slash on the ground show. Or you can see all the ways to support, including end-of-the-year giving and PayPal, on our website, which you know is onthegroundshow.org. Thank you.